Attention all squads. Attention all squads. The suspect in the shooting at Elm and Houston is reported to be an unknown white male, approximately 30. This woman's voice comes on and said, uh, is there anybody there to get that can give me a ride to Dallas? And I said, well, lady, you know, we, we don't run a taxi here, and besides, the president's been shot. Then I hear her voice saying, yes, I think my son is the one they've arrested. That unmistakable voice belongs to CBS News legend Bob Schieffer. She was the most unusual person, I must say, that I think I've ever run into, and I've, I've interviewed a lot of people uh, in my career. <laughs> Before he moderated presidential debates or hosted Face the Nation or reported from across the globe, Schieffer was a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and on one of the darkest days in our nation's history, he found himself in the enviable position, at least for a reporter, of spending hours with the mother of Lee Harvey Oswald, Marguerite. I'm Chris Blake, and this month on Texas Wants to Know, we're devoting episodes to the 60th anniversary of an event that shook the city of Dallas and changed the course of our nation's history the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. This week, we hear Schieffer's remarkable story from that day and how it shaped his career. We sat down in the first week of November at Texas Christian University, where the communication school is named for Schieffer. His story starts at The Cellar, a now defunct Fort Worth nightclub that opened in 1958 on Houston Street. And some members of the Secret Service had shown up, and basically they, they wanted to get something to eat. That's why they had come, and uh, by that time they had run out of food. And so someone suggested that we uh, take them down to, to The Cellar, which was a well-known overnight kind of outrageous coffee house. And... Uh, it was actually part of my beat on the Star-Telegram. I, I would check in there once or twice because there's a lot of rumors going around and stuff. And so anyway, I was appointed to take them all down to the cellar. And uh, so I did, and uh, we stayed down there. And I, I don't know what time got done with it, but uh, I went home and, and went to bed. I was sound asleep when my brother, who was then in high school, he had gotten up and my mother had taken him down and some of his friends to see President Kennedy at the Hotel Texas, because you remember he spoke out in the parking lot, and then he spoke at the Chamber of Commerce dinner there. For Kennedy, November 22nd began in Fort Worth. It was the third of five stops in Texas. He'd already been to San Antonio and Houston, with Dallas and Austin scheduled to follow. And as they were coming back, they got back to home. In those days, I lived out in Benbrook. I, I had, uh, when, once I got out of the Air Force, I had moved back in with my mom because my, my dad had died. And my brother was 10 years younger than me. He, he was still at home with her, so I, I moved in with them. Benbrook is a suburb about 15 miles southwest of the Star-Telegram's headquarters in downtown Fort Worth. My brother came in and woke me up, and he said, you better get up and go to work. He said, uh, I think there's, there's been a shooting uh, in Dallas. And they had just the, you know, just the early, they didn't know that much about it. So anyway, I got up, got dressed, and uh, went down to the Star-Telegram. And just as I pulled into the parking lot, it came over the radio that the president was dead. So you didn't even get to the newsroom until after 1 o'clock that day? No, that's exactly right. And uh, I, I was just overwhelmed. I mean, this is just like some news. What? I mean, how can that be? What, what, what's going on? So anyway, I go up to the, uh, the city room, and it was, as you might imagine, it was just total bedlam up there. Every phone was ringing. I hadn't even talked to anybody yet when I got there. 
you know, all these phones are ringing. So I just went over and picked up one, just trying to help them out. And this woman's voice comes on and said, uh, is there anybody there to get that can give me a ride to Dallas? And I said, well, lady, you know, we, we don't run a taxi here. And besides, the president's been shot. And I was getting ready just to hang the phone up. I thought she was just, you know, I didn't know who she was. And uh, she's, then I hear her voice saying, yes, I think my son is the one they've arrested. And it was Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. And uh, so I immediately went to the city desk and we started to process it. Because I had a TR4 sports car, two-seater in those days. And I thought, well, I, you know, I can't drive this woman over to Dallas in this car. So in those days, the local car dealers would give our automobile editor uh, a car to drive. And uh, Bill Foster was his name. I went over to Bill and I said, what kind of car do you have today and he, he, this week? And he said, well, I've got a Cadillac. And I said, stand by here. And so we got it cleared out. And so Bill and I, you know, got got in the car and drove out to the west side of Fort Worth. And there standing on the curb at the address she had given was this little woman and uh, had on a white nurse's uniform and had a little blue handbag and uh, heavy glasses and she was standing on the curb. So she got in the car. She got in the back seat with me. And Bill drove. And uh, we drove her to Dallas. She was the most unusual person, I must say, that I think I've ever run into. And I've, I've interviewed a lot of people uh, in my career. Why do you say that? She never expressed one question about President Kennedy. She never expressed one question or said anything about his wife or his children. The only thing that she had on her mind was money. And what I led the story with I mean, uh, was uh, when she told me, she said, they will give his wife money and feel sorry for her, and they'll turn their back on me like they always do. I mean, I, you know, I, I was my adrenaline was running high anyway just because of you know, the situation that we're in there. And I said, how could somebody possibly not want to know how's the president's wife or, or how's the family or what else happened over there? All she was, she was totally centered on herself and what was going to happen to her and how it would be the kind of hard luck she had always suffered all her life. Then when we got to the police station, you know, what's an interesting thing in those days, we never told people who we were. If they asked, we said, you know, I work with the Star-Telegram, but if they wanted to think that uh, we were a detective, uh, we just let them think that. And that's why I always wore a snap-rim hat, because all the cops wore snap-rim hats. It's funny, the cops in Fort Worth wore snap-rim hats, and the ones in Dallas wore Stetson-style hats, which was the opposite of what Dallas was the more urban city, and Fort Worth was Cowtown. But that's the way it was, so, you know... When we got to the police station in Dallas, Bill Foster pulled up to the curb and I got out and he went to park the car and I took her into the police station. So I didn't tell anybody I was from the Star-Telegram. I just, first cop I saw, I said, uh, I'm the one that uh, brought Oswald's mother over here. Is there some place we can put her where these reporters won't be bothering her? And he actually found us a room in, in the burglary squad. And this, as the day wore on, proved to be a, a great thing for us because we had a phone and in those days this was long before cell phones and things like if you didn't have a phone you didn't have a story and uh, all those reporters that were jammed into the police station they'd have to go up the street and use somebody's phone and stuff well we had one right there 
in the police station, and, and our guys, they would give this stuff to me, and I'd come back and, and phone it into the Star-Telegram because we were, just kept churning out these uh, uh, these stories. And so uh, I'd never been involved in a story like that, and I hope I never am again. But I must say, it's uh, it was an unbelievable day. Do you think if you were in Fort Worth, the police would have recognized you if you were at Fort Worth PD instead of Dallas PD? Yeah, they would have. But the other part was I had really good sources in, in the Fort Worth Police Department. That's where I learned about sourcing and how you cover a beat. And somebody would have let me in. That's how it was. And, and, and later in the day, I went to, to Captain Will Fritz, chief of homicide, and as did a lot of, a lot of other reporters. He was, you know, everybody was talking to him. I said, uh, she would really, by this time they knew, they didn't figure out who I was, but they knew she was there and everything. And I said, she'd really like to see her son. And he said, uh, yeah, it said we we probably ought to do that, and uh, so they took her down, and we went to the holding room off the jail, and there was another lawman. I think he's probably FBI or or maybe Secret Service who was down there, and uh, he looked over at me and he said, uh, "Where where where are you from?" And I said, uh, "Fort Worth." And he said, "Well, are are you a are you a detective?" I said, "No, no." And I said, "I I work for the Star Telegram," and he said. Son, I want you to get out of here right now. And that's when they realized that uh, I was. So I almost got an interview with Oswald because they were just going to bring him down. But I, I never did get to interview him. Did you, maybe not that day or that week, but were you able to reflect sometime shortly after that on the sequence of events that kind of just how fortuitous it was to be in the newsroom and happen to answer that phone and happen to get into the Dallas Police Department and just wind up in the middle of this story? Well, you know, <laughs> I've never been embarrassed to say sometimes the only reason you get a story is you happen to be in the right place at the right time. And that was one of those days. I mean, would that happen again if it all happened over? Probably not, because it is so uh, so unbelievable that it all came together like that. But I, I really learned a lot covering that story. And one of the things I learned is I didn't know at that time how events like that could have an impact on, on myself. Because, you know, I'd covered the police beat. I'd seen a lot of dead bodies, uh, you know. And, and, you know, the thing about the police beat is it's the best training you can have for any job in journalism, or maybe just for any job, period. Because you see, the, see a side of humanity that other people just are not have seen or, or know about. But on the police beat, every story you cover, you're walking into the worst moment in someone's life. And I've always, and when I talk to journalism students, and I say, you know, if you can could find a way to get, get your job done under those circumstances, get the name spell right, find out, you know, what the motive is, and, and do a complete story, if you can do it under those circumstances, you don't have to be scared of any politician. In the days and weeks after the assassination, what did your follow-up work look like? What was the Star-Telegram as a whole doing in those following weeks? We just kept on this story and kept finding out more and more. And then, of course, on Sunday, again, something of a surprise, they bring Lee Harvey Oswald out and Jack Ruby steps up and just puts a gun in his chest. And, in his in his stomach and, and and kills him and 
I think it was Roger Summers of the Star-Telegram. I'm, I'm not sure of that, but I think Roger was the one at the police station that day. And uh, they were going to, the reason they brought him out, they were going to take him over to the county jail is where you, you know, kept people who had been charged with a felony. So I was over at the county jail and I think it was Roger was, was at the police station. Well, he never got there. And so I never, I never saw him that day. And I, I spent the day uh, just interviewing people who'd come to Dealey Plaza and, and the whole town was just, just in shock. You know, because, I mean, who could have imagined something like this? I remember when 9-11 happened, and I remember somebody said it was not a failure of intelligence. It was a failure of imagination. Nobody would have imagined that something like that was going to happen. And that's exactly how it was in Dallas that day. I mean, and since I was just there, I can't speak with what was going in other places, but I think it's much the same thing. Well, you've covered major news events over the last half century as much as anybody. 9-11 interviews I've done for this series of podcast episodes is the one touchstone that everyone says younger generations can understand what the Kennedy assassination was like in the 60s. Is there anything other than those two events that you would say touched that many people in that kind of way? Well, I think Vietnam did. I think my career, uh, as it were, uh, I always said it was bookended by uh, the Kennedy assassination on the first part and 9-11 uh, in the end. And in between, you had uh, you had Iraq and, uh, and, and, and that and the trouble in the Middle East, but, but Vietnam, most of all. Uh, and and those, those were the things. But, you know, I think back on it, and I think the wisest thing that the city of Dallas ever did, because you may remember that once this happened, there was a movement in Dallas to to bulldoze the school book depository, and as if if we just knock this down and erase it, maybe no one will remember what happened here, which which is absurd, of course. I mean, I'm over overstating that, but they were so wise not to do that. Instead, they they created the Sixth Floor Museum which became a center for scholarship. And I think it helped people understand what had actually actually happened there. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald was not a right-wing nut. He, he was a left-wing loser. I mean, he was somebody who had never accomplished anything in his entire life. And yet, with a mail-order rifle, he had managed to kill the President of the United States. And I always thought of it and I still think of it as kind of the day that America lost its innocence. Up until that time, we thought our, our, our presidents and our leaders were national heroes. I mean, Eisenhower had been president. And, and then he was followed by, by uh, uh, Kennedy. Uh, well, I guess in Truman came in there, of course, along the way. But who was the most glamorous figure in American politics in in, in, in decades. And yet, these people who had accomplished so much and meant so much to so many people, they were, uh, it was just kind of like they were erased. And suddenly the country just felt vulnerable. You know, I mean, uh, Fort Worth in those days was the home of the E-52s. That's where the, the atom bombs were uh, over there stored. And uh, we were one of the number one targets. We were always taught 
during the years of the Cold War. And I think there was a certain pride in that. And But we came to understand really quickly, faced with what had happened there, that that's not something that uh, was something you want to say, well, I'm sure glad that they put all those bombs over there. It just changed America. I mean, all of this that, that happened so suddenly. And I think one of the good things I talked about, that they didn't bulldoze, bulldoze the, uh, the uh, sixth floor uh, book depository building. I think there's a lesson there for us. You know, you don't get past something by trying to cover it up. And the fact of the matter was, Lee Harvey Oswald, he wasn't from Dallas. He wasn't of Dallas. He didn't represent anything about Dallas. And yet, people wanted to blame blame Dallas for this. I, I think, it's opinion purely stated, I think it would have happened any in any city uh, in the United States. It just happened uh, that it happened uh, in Dallas. But it took Dallas a long time to get past that, and I think the fact that they kept the museum there and made it a place of scholarship where people go, I think it had a lot to do with helping people understand that this was not something about Dallas. Speaking about Dallas, I know you stayed in the market for several years after as a TV reporter. So you were here for a little while afterwards. What was the mood in the city in the five, six years you were still here after the assassination? Well, I think it remained part of everyone's life. It wasn't something that you just didn't think about or talk about. I mean, obviously, different events happened and went on. But the city kind of, both cities to a certain extent, and and America kind of, it was kind of a healing process, and uh, and that took place. But uh, it's something that, uh, it was one of the darkest days in American history. It'll always be with us, but it'll be it's a part of our history. And the important thing is that uh, we keep an accurate history. That's the best thing that we can give to the next generation. The next generation will take care of their own generation. They, they, they'll figure out things that we don't know about. Another big story that I covered was the uh, the Falklands War uh, between Great Britain and, and Argentina. And they sent me down there, and I, I didn't have any idea what, what it was about. I'd, I'd just come back from vacation, and they said, get on a plane, and we're going to send you to Buenos Aires to cover this war that's on the way. The first thing that I learned when I got there was that Argentina had no reliable history. And what had always happened, and it happens in, in, in dictatorships and in authoritarian governments, uh, the guy who comes to office erases all the things that his predecessor has done that were good and, and, and begins to tell his own story. And so every generation has to kind of start over to discover what, what's happened before they got there. And... And we don't have to do that in the United States, and, and thank goodness that we don't. We, and I think the most important thing that those of us in journalism now can do is make sure we give an accurate history to the people who come after us. I think that's, I just think that's very important. Dallas is still the city where Kennedy was shot. 60 years on, it's not as dark of a cloud over the city, I would say, what do you think helped lift that? Is it just a matter of time, or was there any event that helped lift that dark cloud over the city? I think the, the beginning of it was when they decided not to tear down the Texas School Book Depository. 
and, and try to rewrite history or try to gloss over history. And I think that I, I, I sincerely believe that was that was part of it. Dallas is a great city, you know, as is as is Fort Worth. But uh, this idea and, you know, we're kind of seeing a little of that these days where people are trying to rewrite or censure history and just put the good stuff in and leave the bad stuff out. That just doesn't work. And it not only doesn't work, it makes things worse because it makes it harder to get to get to the truth. You don't learn from past mistakes if you erase everything. Exactly. We have one more episode of Texas Wants to Know dedicated to the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Next week, we'll dive into how the city of Dallas responded to one of the nation's darkest days, from being labeled the city of hate in the shooting's immediate aftermath to the creation of the Sixth Floor Museum in 1989. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote and produced this episode with audio editing from Brie Flores, editorial support from Cooper Mall, and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan. <laughs>